David says, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you His saints, and give thanks to His holy name. For His anger is but for a moment, and His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By Your favor, O Lord, You made my mountain stand strong. You hid Your face, I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. And now, Isaiah 53, as you turn there, this of course is that glorious passage, the prophecy of Isaiah, as he looks forward to the coming of that great suffering servant of the Lord who would come to take upon himself the suffering and the sin of his people. And that of course is our Lord Jesus Christ. In Isaiah 53, verse 3, we read about Jesus. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. And then from Luke chapter 6, our Lord Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount preaches about those who weep. I'd like to read the entirety of verses 20 through 26, but especially uh, we're going to focus on verse 21b and 25b. And Jesus lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. We're going to end the reading of God's Word there. Well, it won't surprise you to hear me say that our American society has become addicted to the pursuit of happiness and pleasure and comfort. Our culture seems to have a driving passion for good feelings. And 
those feelings are being constantly fueled by the advertising marketing industry, from TV commercials to billboard ads, from soda cans to candy wrappers. The greatest question of our day seems to be, what's in it for me? What choice can I make? What flavor can I choose? What commitment can I make to make my life happy and comfortable and free of cares and trouble and worry? It's become the worldview of our age, the, the philosophy of our day, that pursuing pleasure and avoiding hardship is the greatest good of life. That's called hedonism. And if you want to learn, want to learn more about that, ask one of our faith core kids because they know all about hedonism. I dare you to do it. But we don't have to read very far into Scripture to realize that that worldview of pleasure above pain in all circumstances, that worldview stands in very stark contrast to the values of the kingdom of God. I read Luke's account here of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and, and Jesus says something here very shocking, at least in the eyes of the world. He declares blessing upon the poor and the hungry and the sorrowful and the persecuted. And then, contrary to hedonism, He pronounces curses upon the rich, the full, the jolly, and the popular. And Jesus is telling us something very important here about what it means to be His disciple. He says if we would follow Him, if we would bear His name before a watching world, then we must see things upside down, at least from the perspective of our culture. But in fact, the values, He says, of the kingdom of God represent things as they truly are. And as citizens of God's kingdom, we must understand that true blessing, genuine comfort, only belong to those who are defined by the priorities of God and the priorities of His Word. Tonight, we're going to focus on one of Jesus' statements in Luke 6 when He says, Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Our world says to Jesus' words, How ridiculous! What blessing could there possibly be in experiencing a life of tears? Isn't the goal of human life to avoid tears and discomfort at all costs? Again, here we see the virtues of God's kingdom are different than those of our world. And what we want to learn tonight from God's Word from Luke 6, but other passages as well, is that it is only those who have learned to shed godly tears in this present age that will laugh with lasting Christian comfort in the age to come. It's backwards in the eyes of our world. But this is truth, that only those who have learned to shed godly tears in this present age will laugh with lasting Christian comfort in the age to come. Well, what kind of weeping is Jesus talking about here? We might be tempted to sort of generalize what Jesus says and conclude that, well, the Christian life must mean being downcast or, or depressed all the time. 
Perhaps Jesus is teaching that, that, that we should have a, a sort of a dour disposition and, and not be too joyful about life, not get too high on life. I came across a statistical report recently that suggested that, that some of the most religious states in the U.S. are the biggest poppers of antidepressant pills. And I suppose the, the, the goal of that, that report was to prove that religion, in the end, really doesn't make us healthier and happier and better after all. But by pronouncing blessing upon those who weep, Jesus is not teaching that, that we should be naturally pessimistic or, or downcast all the time, as if that were somehow more pious. And he's not talking about grief in general either as if there are special blessings set aside for everyone who's going through a tough time. No, in, in referring to those who weep now, Jesus is talking about people who have a God-given spiritual trait. Their weeping is of a spiritual kind. It's an attitude, it's a perspective that's been worked in them by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so what is that then? The, what's the essence of godly weeping? Well, first of all, godly weeping comes from a sincere sorrow over our own sin. Godly weeping defines those who have truly encountered God, the only God of heaven and earth, a God who is righteous, a God who is holy, a God who cannot encounter sin without dealing with it justly. That's the God that we encounter, that we know, and that must make a difference in how we regard our sin. All of Scripture testifies to the fact that our God has a righteous indignation, a holy anger towards sin. In Exodus 34, we're told that He visits the iniquity of His people with judgment. King David knew about that. In his life, he experienced God's anger when he fell into sin. I read from Psalm 30, verse 5, where he confesses that God judges sin with a holy anger. All of Israel had seen that. They saw the righteous anger of God when they rebelled against Him over and over again. And it was Israel's sin that left Isaiah the prophet shaking in fear before a God who is holy, holy, holy. In Isaiah 6, verse 5, we find Isaiah cowering before God because he saw his own poverty of spirit compared to God's holiness. He came to God weeping and, and confessing, mourning over his own sin and over the sin of God's people. And when we contemplate our sin in the presence of a God who is holy, holy, holy. We ought to cry out like Isaiah, saying, Woe is me, for I am a person of uncleanness. That's the first thing, that, that godly weeping involves sorrow over our own sin before a holy God and before His perfect Word. And yet we notice something about Isaiah and David and others like them. Isaiah was a righteous prophet. David was a man after God's own heart. These men were, for the most part, obedient servants of God. They didn't need to be converted from unbelief to belief. 
They didn't just weep at the moment of their conversion. They recognized that godly weeping over personal sin is something that should characterize every believer's life for all of their life. We never stop weeping over our sin. It's part of the Christian's daily life as we grow up into Christian maturity. I've often heard older Christians reflect on how their struggle with sin intensifies. It it becomes deeper and stronger as they grow older. Their sin becomes more distasteful, more disgusting in their sight as they, they move along the road of sanctification. That's the way it should be. As we grow up in Christ-likeness, we must become increasingly aware of how offensive sin really is, and we must weep more intensely over that sin that still remains in us. And so you see, the essence of godly weeping is having a real, genuine grasp of our sin and a genuine mourning, sorrowing over it. And that sorrowing must exist before we can have a genuine joy in our salvation, in God's forgiveness. We see, secondly, that that our godly sorrow doesn't end there. Our weeping as Christians extends beyond our own sin. We also mourn, we also weep over the nature of sin itself as as it pervades our world, as it pervades human life, as it breaks down relationships, as it breaks down the beauty and the order of God's world. It's not hard to see the effect of sin in our world, is it? If you still watch the evening news, you know that it unfolds like a series of clips from a violent movie. Newspapers are filled with reports on uprisings, unrest all over the world. Jobs are scarce. Crime is high. Government shutdowns, political dishonesty, they're always threatening, it seems. Disease and death are all around. And at the root of it all is that God has been forgotten. In many places, He's been outrightly rejected God's worship has been abandoned. His church has been pushed into the corners, relegated to the margins of society. In Psalm 30, which I read earlier, David laments the fact that that, that his enemies and the enemies of God and the enemies of his people are always lurking, always ready to attack him, seeking to rejoice in his downfall. And so in verses 9 and 10, he he confesses that if it were not for the Lord, they would have prevailed over him. They would have destroyed his life by bringing him down to the pit of destruction. And so, he cries out for God's deliverance and freedom. David recognized, as we do, that there's something desperately wrong with this world because of sin. Things are not as they're supposed to be. And so, we weep as Christians because we know that at the root of the problem is human rebellion against God. We mourn that people's hearts, the hearts of our loved ones, are set against God. 
And we cry out like the psalmist in Psalm 119. Streams of tears, he says, flow from my eyes because your law is not obeyed. We have a zeal for his law, for what is right, for what is true. And we weep because in the world his law is not fulfilled, is not obeyed. And we know by the Holy Spirit that nothing short of a change of heart can bring about new life. We weep for the sins of the world because we know how far things have fallen from their original goodness. We weep because we long to see lawbreakers transformed into those who love God and love His law. But we weep to that extent, not just for our own sin, but for the sins of the world Because as Christians united to Jesus by faith, we share in Jesus' weeping over the sins of His world. If you think about it, Jesus' whole ministry, His entire public ministry, was a ministry of mourning, of sorrow. He came to dwell among sinners in a world that He had created and crafted beautifully and intricately, but a a world that was now broken and marred by sin. He came to His own with a message of salvation and grace and peace, and His own hometown rejected Him. He came looking for ears to hear And he found rebellious hearts that were turned against him and his ministry of salvation. Jesus mourned over the tragedies that we experience in life because of sin. Even though he was sinless himself, he wept over the sins of others. He wept openly at the tomb of his friend Lazarus because he saw and he lamented the consequences of the first Adam's sin in the lives of those he loved. He wept because human life was created beautiful and good, not like this. And so I read from Isaiah 53 that Jesus came to earth as our suffering servant, despised and rejected. He was a man of sorrows, a man acquainted with many griefs. He wept over Jerusalem because of the hardness of heart that kept its people from coming to Him in faith. And as I said, because we belong to Jesus by faith, we share in His sorrow. We share in His weeping, and with godly hope, we long for things to be set right again. We long for the renewal of all things. When death will no longer bite, and darkness will no longer cover, Jesus knew more than anyone what godly grief looked like, what it should be. But the wonderful good news with which we end tonight is that our Lord Jesus is no longer weeping. Jesus is no longer among those who mourn. Instead, we read in Psalm 2 that our Lord Jesus is enthroned in heaven, and from there, He's laughing. He's laughing. Psalm 2 gives us a delightful picture of God as the king of all of heaven and earth, and he's seated in his position of absolute power, and he is laughing at the foolish plots and plans 
of the wicked kings and rulers of the earth. And and the Son of Man laughs and scoffs with him because he knows that no wicked power can undo or interrupt God's purposes to redeem a people for himself, a people who can laugh at tomorrow because they have the assurance of salvation in Jesus Christ. Isaiah, the same prophet who wept over his own sins, who wept over the sins of the people of Israel, the same prophet who foretold the coming of the man of sorrows in in Isaiah 53, also foresaw the joyful procession of the redeemed. In Isaiah 35, verse 10, he writes about the ransomed of the Lord, those redeemed, those rescued from sin and death, and he says, the ransomed of the Lord shall return. They'll come to Zion, the place of God's dwelling, with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. The ransomed, he says, will return to God's dwelling with rejoicing. The brief night of weeping over sin and its consequences will quickly be followed by a morning of laughter and rejoicing for those who have been reconciled to God through His Son. We may sorrow for a while, but there's a greater joy on the horizon. We see that same pattern in Jesus' own life. Jesus, for a time, needed to come to earth as the man of sorrows. He needed to be crushed for our iniquities. He first had to drink the cup of suffering and grief so that He could then rise again victoriously and return to the Father with our salvation squarely in His hand, fully purchased, filled with joy, laughing and rejoicing in the days to come. You see, brothers and sisters, there's great hope for us who weep now because we know, we have absolute certainty that there is an end to our weeping on the horizon And it's secured through the victory of Jesus Christ. And what that means practically for us is this, that that while we still mourn over our remaining sins now, that mourning over sin, that struggle with sin, should never cause us to be overwhelmed by despair. Because even as we grieve over our remaining sins, we have an inextinguishable hope and comfort in Jesus, and we can see those sins that still remain in light of the victory of the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus' death vanquished sin and death for you and me because He stood in our place as the righteous servant who bore our iniquities, who justified many there on that cross. That's why we confess, in the words of the Heidelberg Catechism, to the question, what is your comfort? What is your hope in life and in death, even in the midst of temporary tears? What is the anchor for your soul? That because Christ has fully paid the penalty for my sins, because He took the curse of God's wrath upon Himself, God accepts His sacrifice in my place on my behalf, and He has attributed to my account the full righteousness of Jesus. 
God receives us as perfectly acceptable in His sight through His Son. And He's given us His Spirit who lives in us, who enables us to fight sin, to win victories over some of that sin, and to make real beginnings in personal obedience. We have all that we need for life and godliness in this life. And so while we still weep over our remaining sins, we weep with an overwhelming hope and a knowledge that God will never condemn us for those sins. And one day He will put those sins to a complete end. We find a glorious foretaste of that reality, a vision of the new heavens and earth where all things are made right again in Revelation 21. John looked and he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be them, with them as their God. And listen to this glorious promise. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. On that glorious day, we will no longer mourn the sins of others. Right now, we live rubbing shoulder to shoulder with the wicked. We cannot escape the depravity that is all around us. But on that glorious day, when Christ ushers in the new heavens and the new earth, in the heavenly kingdom, we will stand shoulder to shoulder only with those who are of the community of the saints who've been cleansed from all their sin by the power of Christ's blood and now worship Christ in unending perfect joy. On that day, we will no longer weep over the sins of the world because God's justice will have been accomplished on behalf of His church. Those who laugh now in their sin and wickedness and rebellion will be judged eternally in the pit of their own making. But God's elect will be brought in securely, and the wedding feast of the Lamb will begin with great joy and singing. These are the wondrous promises of God for those who weep now in godly fear and repentance. The promise that our momentary grief will give way to God's lifetime favor. The promise that our weeping in the night will be overcome by the bright morning of perfect joy. The promise that our temporary sadness will turn into the dance of salvation. Praise God. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank You for the manifold promises of Your Word that sustain us in this life. We look around us and we do see the prevalence of sin, wickedness, and depravity. We look inside of us and we see that 
that all is not yet what it should be. We still struggle with remaining sin. The old nature, the old man still rears its ugly, sinful head on regular occasion. But we live in hope. Not in discouragement or fear, but we live in hope of what is coming. We hold on to the glorious true promise that that every tear will be wiped away. There will be no more crying, no more sadness. When Christ returns and finishes what He has begun to wash us clean of all of our sin, to give us new bodies, to judge the wicked that they will no more trouble the church or rebel against God. We thank You that You have ordained a day a day on the near horizon when you will judge wickedness and glorify your name by showing yourself to be the holy God of heaven and earth. And you promise to usher us into that glorious life where we will sing together with the saints of all ages who are covered in the righteous robes of Jesus. We thank you that though we weep for a time, we weep for now that there is a morning of laughter, a morning of joy that will so overtake our present sorrows that it will be one day as if they had never been. We thank you for this glorious promise. We latch hold on to it in faith, and we trust that you will continue to keep us in those truths and preserve us in our faith. In Christ's name we pray, amen.